Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Flint briefing call on the new government's uh, budget yesterday. I'm Kieran Horwich. I'm a partner here at Flint, and I'm joined this morning by my colleagues Tim Pitt, a former advisor to Chancellors Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid, and Giles Wilkes, a former advisor to Business Secretary Vince Cable and uh, Prime Minister Theresa May. Um, against a more optimistic short-term economic picture, um, yesterday the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt delivered his first budget. Uh, despite being pitched as a lower-key, slightly more boring everyday budget, um, Hunt actually made some significant spending in- increases and tax cuts, adding up to um, almost $90 billion over the next five years. So this is going to give us a lot to talk about over the next 25 minutes. We'll look further into what the Chancellor actually announced. Um, we'll look at the economic and policy outlook, uh, as well as the political implications and, of course, what all of this means for business. Uh, as usual, the lines are muted and we won't take any questions during the call. But do let us know if there's anything that you would like to discuss afterwards. So, Tim, um, let me start with you. And before we get into the detail, can you just give us an overview of what the Chancellor announced yesterday um, and how it's landed and, and any things that particularly struck you? Uh, sure. So so in terms of how it's landed, I think I think they've got a couple of tricky issues that might cause them some problems over the next few days. And it's always quite difficult to know whether or not uh, issues the day after the budget are going to turn into real problems or they'll just go away. But they've essentially got one on ending the pensions lifetime allowance, which is being seen as a bung to the richest. And, and one, they've got a you know, there's a really massive cliff edge in childcare support for people earning over £100,000, both of which I think uh, are going to be niggly problems for them. But broadly, it's been received really quite well by, by the sort of economic commentariat. And then I'd say it's had an okay-ish political reception, um, not, not not stunning, but, but sort of reasonably okay. The the thing that really struck me, though, um, was was the point you mentioned at the beginning. This was billed as a as a low key event. The Chancellor himself said he wanted it to be a, a boring budget over the weekend. But for a low key budget, it involves some really big moves on the public finances in 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 terms of a big net giveaway. So as, as you mentioned, the Chancellor announced over ninety billion pounds of tax cuts and spending rises um, over the next five years. I compare that to the autumn statement, which was this big crisis management job on the public finances. There, he raised about £130 billion over five years. So in a sense, he's given back about two-thirds of the fiscal tightening that he delivered uh, a few months ago. Now, it's not quite as simple as that, because a lot of what he announced yesterday was was one-off. But this was definitely not not, not the low-key budget that, that, that the Treasury billed. And the reason he, that he was able to do all this is, is because the, the OBR presented him with actually quite a big improvement in the forecast for, for public finances, which, which Giles will talk about in more detail. Now, in, in terms of what he did, you know, he framed the, the whole event around his four E's, um, you know, that he says are his priorities, enterprise, education, employment, and, and everywhere. But I, th- I think actually a more helpful way to think about it is that he did a combination of, of two things. So first of all, he dealt with a series of short-term political pressures that he had essentially had very little choice over. So there's more money for defence, and then he pulled a few levers on the cost of living, so extending the energy price guarantee at its current level until the summer, and, and freezing fuel duty, which 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 avoided a, what would have been a politically suicidal increase of around uh, 12p a litre. Then the second thing he did was to announce really quite a substantive package of measures aimed at the supply side of the economy in order to try to increase growth. 
And all the serious moves he made here basically fall into two buckets, which are what the Treasury sees as, as the two biggest structural challenges currently facing the UK economy. So first of all, he's made some reasonably sized moves to try and increase levels of business investment. That's been a historic problem for the UK for a long time. It's been a particular problem since Brexit. And here, the big lever that he pulled was announcing a temporary three-year regime of full expensing of capital uh, allowances. And the idea is that that will significantly boost the UK's international tax competitiveness. Now, the the Treasury know that, that it's not a silver bullet on business investment, but their hope will be that a combination of the greater stability that we're seeing since Rishi Sunak took over, particularly the, the the deal with the EU, combined with what the Chancellor announced yesterday, is going to make a dis- difference on on the business investment front. And then, and then the second structural weakness the Chancellor focused on was was the labour market, and particularly this issue of of the big increase of of nearly half a million economically inactive people uh, uh, compared with before COVID. And here he unveiled a pretty broad uh, package of measures across pensions and welfare, as well as a big expansion in the scope and generous generosity of uh, childcare support. Now, there were some other quite big announcements in other areas yesterday, too, on the growth side, on energy, on levelling up and, 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 and on innovation. But business investment and, and, and labour supply, those, those were clearly the focus. Now, the, the net result of all that is the Chancellor has left himself really very little wiggle room against his fiscal targets. So only around six billion against the target of public sector debt uh, falling in five years' time. That is absolutely tiny by by historic standards. Now, what he's hoping is that he's going to get an improvement in the forecast that is going to allow him to, to, to do a pre-election giveaway come the autumn or his budget next spring. But obviously, if the forecasts go, go go in the other direction, I think he might find himself in, in quite a sticky spot come, come, come the autumn. Great. Thanks, Tim. So, look, we will, we'll come back to you um, and, and others and talk through some of the more specific measures in a minute. Um, but, Giles, coming to you next, um, I want to talk about the broader economic outlook. Jeremy Hunt was described as, as lucky, uh, a lucky Chancellor by one of his colleagues, Treasury Select Committee Chair Harriet Baldwin, um, recently because of the, the mild winter and falling energy prices in the last few months. Is he still looking lucky? Thanks, Kieran. Um, well, up to a couple of weeks ago, I think my answer would have been yes. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, yeah, he had a really difficult task last autumn. It's not the sort of thing the Chancellor wants to come into. He came in during a moment of crisis with pretty much no choice but to impose these really tough fiscal choices amounting, well, to £55 billion at the um, at the horizon, although, as, as Tim says, it accumulates to like £130 billion over the forecast. But he was then lucky in a couple of ways. I mean, first, I mean, compared to his predecessors, he could do nothing but good. I mean, simply by curtailing the energy price scheme, cancelling the unfunded tax cuts, setting out some, albeit unspecified, spending cuts, he could don the mantle of fiscal responsibility and prepare the ground now for a reasonably normal budget. Um, second, as you mentioned, the weather gods were on his side. I mean, when you compare projections from last autumn to today, gas prices are down by around half from around 300 pence a therm to around 150. Still very high by historic standards, but much lower than the crisis moment. Inflation is therefore mechanically much lower, which is the entire reason that instead of having a recession this year, we're probably going to just about skirt it, although there's always a lot of uncertainty, as I'll discuss later. 
So inflation appeared also in the last few months to have peaked everywhere and everyone was beginning to look at the next phase of central bank action, talking about raising rates and lower increments, how long are they going to keep them high, but the possibility of this really difficult thing, a soft landing. So all of those were good. And gilt yields, which obviously have a really important effect right now on our interest borrowing costs, were back to around 3% at the beginning of this month, which is not cheap by the standards of the last 10 years, but much cheaper than November, and that would have provided another fiscal windfall. So all of this might have helped the fiscal situation, which has provided him a third form of luck. I mean, if you look at the key table 4.13 in the in the economic and fiscal outlook, there are higher tax revenues all the way out to 2028, which, as Tim has set out, he has in some part spent on these good things, capital allowances and childcare, which I'll be discussing a bit more underneath. But the um, these um, high revenues are not a policy outcome, they're just an economy richer in tax than we we thought in November. So all of those, great luck. And also, I'd say, given that he needs to get on with number 10, the Prime Minister has appeared far more sure-footed. So that's a happy backdrop, lucky Chancellor. But recent events may suggest he's lost some of the lucky charm. In just the last few weeks, that expectation that inflation is fully under control has kind of gone away a little. It's looking more stubborn to vanquish. Guilt yields rose all the way back up again. And then in just the last week, we saw the sudden implosion of this bank over in uh, California, Silicon Valley Bank, and rapid contagion across financial markets. Only in the last couple of days, the crisis situation around Credit Suisse. Now, no doubt Treasury and others deserve credit for addressing the direct consequences. HSBC bought Silicon Valley Bank's UK branch over the weekend in a sort of textbook operation. But in just the past few weeks, financial markets, banking stock, commodities, oil prices have all fallen in a way that normally means economic distress and signifies a kind of tightening of credit conditions, the sort of thing that can easily knock a recovery off off track. And at the very time, the Chancellor wants businesses to go out and invest and has put real fiscal resources behind it. So his luck has deserted him there. And something else um, that can't really be put down to luck is that the OBR, which for a long period after the financial crisis was determinedly optimistic at the horizon that we're going to eventually get back to that kind of productivity growth that was normal before, that that assessment, the supply capacity, you know, they're trying to be as optimistic as they can, but they've been moving more towards the Bank of England's more bearish um, outlook for a while. And so although they have improved Uh, productivity assessments at the forecast horizon. Mostly this is because of higher population estimates and higher migration. But it's little changed over the next two years. So any higher growth we get this year, thanks to those lucky energy price falls, come at the cost of the next couple of years. So the overall picture going out to the election is not of a particular booming economy. So the broader outlook in the latest OBR document is a kind of return to the sort of mediocre but acceptable growth we started seeing towards the end of the 2010s. A declining deficit, some room ahead for these rolling fiscal targets, which are slightly odd and always give you a bit more leeway as time passes. So there's room for giveaways and a positive narrative in the next in a year's time. And, you know, they'll be able to boast about getting GDP back up above its pre-COVID level sooner or later, which is a pretty weak target. But there must be real concerns in the Treasury that very recent events might just derail that. Thanks, Giles. So so we're still talking really about quite sluggish growth. In in light of that, how credible was Hunt's package yesterday? You know what? I think it was good. And you've just got to understand that good means 
shifting this enormous thing, which is the UK economic growth potential, by a small amount. I mean, let's see what the what he was trying to do. He's trying to do all the right things. If you look at it in in really basic blocks, demand, labour, capital and technology, we can set aside the first one. Demand management is in the lap of the weather gods. And until inflation is back on target, the government is determinedly refusing to make attempts to juice up spending beyond what it thinks is sustainable. That was the kind of truss approach last autumn. Labour supply is where the chancellor can make a difference on the supply side relatively quickly. When you do something to boost labour supply, the workers make a difference pretty immediately. One of the easiest ways to boost future growth as well is to put in a higher immigration assumption, which the OBR has just done. So the steps he's taken to boost the labour supply are impressive and wide ranging. The, the child support, the child care support is the most expensive part of it. And it's coming in in a couple of years time, but it's going to cost around five billion at the 2027 horizon. Um, that's going to boost labour supply by around 65,000. The various welfare ideas, which add up, I think, looking over them to 800 million in total, including sort of getting rid of some of the tougher workplace capability assessments aimed at um, people trying to get back into work so that it becomes less risky to go back into it. You're not going to lose all of your benefits so immediately. These look like many of these are the sort of measures an earnest, can I say it, centre left think tank might have proposed. And they look like they're going to boost labour supply again by a few tens of thousands. That centre-left think tank would not have proposed the abolition of the lifetime allowance on pensions contributions, where the chances getting a bit of heat for helping so many, frankly, very well-off people. That's meant to boost the labour supply as well, though, a few 15,000 people in the next few years. But all in all, this is a £7 billion package, a slightly higher labour supply, about 110,000 people. The chance of putting his money where his mouth is. The problem is, even 110,000 extra people, that's only about 0.3% of the employment um, total and maybe because they're not regarded as the highest paid people mostly 0.2% higher GDP about 5 billion a year call it so you know it's good but it's not enough to really pay for its cost then there's but then you know that's labour supply then there's investment full expensing for capital which Tim mentioned earlier this got a really massive cheer in the house from the Conservatives and it should in my view quell all the grumbling about the headline rate of tax even though the OBR evaluated it pretty much as it did the super deduction, largely shifting investment around, leaving the stock mostly unchanged at the horizon. In fact, the OBR now thinks it was too optimistic with regard to the super deduction. Um, and has also made this big point about things that are temporary, like the three-year capital uh, allowance that was announced yesterday, don't change the total capital stock, a heavy hint that they might be more generous if it was made permanent. So there will be a big fight over the next few months, the make it permanent gang on one side and the see it doesn't work team on the other. Like all the other measures, the fiscal cost is set to exceed the effect of it. So and then there's finally technology. Now, there wasn't a fiscal announcement here and that there wasn't new money. Go to the policy measures and you can't see anything about quantum in there. But he set out this already large R&D budget and said, look, this is how we're going to spend it. And doing things like setting out a 10 year strategy for quantum is actually quite good. You don't normally get that much certainty from this government. Likewise, for things like carbon capture and storage, a 20 billion commitment from existing budgets, or the city regional sustainable transport settlements, which are eight billion pounds so that cities other than London can try and get big travel to work areas. These are all kind of good things. They were in the forecast, but they are allocating money in a way that business has some certainty. So good policy making there, in my view. 
Um, and finally, there's the investment zones, 12 of them, a billion pounds in total, 80 million each over five years. So when you tot it up, it's not really enough to transform an area, but it's also going to be um, problematic for the people who don't have their own investment zones. And the Treasury, I suspect, are wondering if they can really create technology clusters with good reason. We're not particularly good at this. So bottom line, growth has been nudged up by all of these things. And the OBR went out of its way to say, you know, this is one of the largest increases. It is, in fact, the largest upward revision they have made to potential output within their five-year forecast as a result of policy decisions taken by the government. So that's good. But that upgrade was only 0.2% of GDP. Raising growth is really, really hard. Um, so, you know, good effort. But what boy, does he need to make a lot of efforts? Back to you, Kieran. Thanks, Giles. Um, so, Tim, coming back to you, between you and Giles, you've talked a lot about what was in the budget and, and obviously there are a lot about what that means for the economy. But what was missing? What's the Chancellor held back for his pre-election budget? Well, I, I think it's not just what he's held back from his pre-election budget, but where he's held back in areas where he's almost certainly going to need to provide more funding in the future, whether whether he likes it or not. So the most obvious thing in the short term was that there wasn't anything on public sector pay. Now, that's understandable given negotiations are ongoing, but it's almost certain that he's going to need to provide some more money to, to settle the raft of, of disputes that are leading to all the strikes that we've seen over the winter. Beyond that, I think the other, the other big issue is that the current plans for public spending after the next election are, you know, I, I just don't think they're they're credible because they they essentially involve real terms cuts to a range of of departments. Given the the NHS would would presumably be protected, and that's going to come at a time when when public services are under huge pressure. So I think whoever's chancellor after the next election uh, is almost certainly going to have to provide more money for public services. And I thought actually it was quite interesting that instead of doing that, instead of topping up that 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 core budget, Hunt essentially decided to expand the state's remit with his childcare offer, expanding it to sort of uh, younger children. And and so, you know, rather than putting more money into what the state already does, he expanded the, the, the remit of the state. That that isn't what I'd call classically uh, conservative, what whatever the merits are on 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 the supply side that, that Giles talks about. I think on the growth side in terms of what 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 was missing, look as Giles said there's a lot of sensible stuff in there. Um, but he didn't take action you know, on a number of issues where where the UK has big structural challenges. So there's nothing on planning reform. There were no big tax reforms, uh, uh, for example. Now, that's politically completely understandable. All of those things, both of those things are, are, are politically very difficult. You know, realistically, I can't see those being touched this side of an election, but, but, but they remain enduring problems for the UK economy. Now, in terms of, of of the election, you know, the other big thing missing from, from a Conservative point of view is a is a retail tax offer. So, you know, there was the stuff on, on the pensions allowance, but other than that, there was nothing really substantive on, on personal tax. And you would expect that to change ahead of the next uh, election, either at his autumn statement or, or the, his budget this time next year. And I would have thought you'd probably see something around income tax, given the, the really big increase in revenues that, that we're seeing from that particular tax over the next five years, um, given that the, the various thresholds are remaining frozen in uh, cash terms. Now, I, you know, I think that then leads to, 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 to a broader point, which is, you know, if, if yesterday's budget was a, was, was a budget for wonks, which is what, you know, Jeremy Hunt described it as going into it, I think the next couple of fiscal events are going to be much more nakedly political. 
Thanks, Tim. So that gives us um, a, a sort of nice segue into the politics of yesterday's budget. How how did um, yesterday's events set up those political dividing lines between Labour Party and the Tories as we move towards the, sorry, the Tories and the Labour Party, in fact, as we move towards the, the next general election? And how is Hunt positioned within his party? Well, on, on, on the first point, I think it's what's quite interesting is, is really how similar both parties' plans now are on the economy, certainly compared to, you know, you had Labour going far off to the left under Jeremy Corbyn, you had the Tories going far off to the right under Liz Truss. They've both come right back to what to what I'd call the the centre. Now, of course, there are still differences on climate ambition, for for, for example. But in lots of areas, their, their forward-looking plans really aren't that different. So, you know, in, in, in the short term, Labour are going to tack on this, uh, 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 tack the Chancellor on this pensions issue as being a bung to the rich. But but what was striking listening to Keir Starmer's response to the budget yesterday was quite how much of it he supported. So, you know, Labour would have a broadly similar fiscal stance. He said he'd support the defence spending. He said he'd support the childcare measures and some of the welfare reforms. He backed the devolution deals. And I suspect from what Ra- Rachel Reaver says that they're going to back the the changes to capital allowances, the, the the full expensing regime. So, so in fact, a lot of what Starmer was trying to do yesterday seemed to be actually claim claim credit for the government's policies, from the windfall tax to the to the sort of energy price guarantee, rather than saying he disagreed with 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 lots of it. And I think, from a Labour point of view, the dividing line going forward, therefore, is going to be less about the forward-looking vision, really. Of course, they're going to say it's different and more bold, etc. But, but I think the focus is going to be on on attacking the Conservatives' record on the economy over the last thirteen years, particularly in terms of living standards and 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 the state of public services. From a Conservative point of view, I think I think it is harder. So the the normal attack, you know, from a Conservative point of view, would be on Labour being fiscally irresponsible. That is obviously more difficult to do when your own party caused a full-on fiscal crisis fairly recently. Um, that said, I think there are parts of the Labour offer which which don't stack up. So they've got this twenty eight billion pound climbing um, twenty eight billion pound climate pledge, which is totally inconsistent with their with their fiscal rule to have debt falling. They've also said they're going to abolish business rates, but have absolutely no plan for what to replace it with. That's another twenty six billion uh, quid. So I think the, the Tories will will try to attack this as the same old Labour la- la- Labour who just deliver more spending and and, and, and more borrowing. And whose plans simply aren't aren't deliverable. The other the other point you you asked about was was sort of within the Conservative uh, Party. Now you've got the usual suspects like Jacob Rees Mogg on the right sounding off on on the tax side today and various others. But broadly speaking, I think there's going to be a grudging acceptance of the budget. And part of that is because you know after the last few weeks and some notable successes for for the Prime Minister, particularly the Windsor. Framework. I think there's a big part of the parliamentary party that is finally feeling a bit more optimistic. Think maybe there is a chance that 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 they can still win at the next election, and you know they're they're sort of welcoming the the return of serious credible government, and and they don't want to rock the boat. But underneath it all, I think there is real unease quite broadly within the party about how high the tax burden is going. And you know, as I sort of mentioned previously, I think the Chancellor is absolutely going to have to come up with a compelling offer here to keep them happy, either in the in the autumn or, or, or next spring. I think the underlying problem for the, for the for the Conservatives is that the tax burden is rising because we have an aging population that is putting huge pressure on on on, on public services, and I think there is really no escaping 
uh, uh, that. But I think you know, even 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 taking that 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 into account, that the chancellor is going to have to come up with with a retail offer on 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 the tax side before too long. Thanks very much, Tim. So, Giles, before we wrap up, um, it wouldn't be a flink call uh, if we didn't ask our final question. What does this all mean from a business perspective? Well, you know, we're being reminded all the time, but it's worth repeating. This is a business friendly government. It's worth getting used to that again. That they don't regard business as a kind of political player they need to be fighting with or needing to throw insults at or arguing with. Um and also, they want to be known for competent delivery. This is a, a government led by a prime minister who apparently spent a lot of time trying to understand how supermarket supply chains work in Northern Ireland. He's that kind of a guy. And they they realise they can't do it all a priori. This includes the Treasury. The Treasury itself is doing a push on engagement. And I've known a Treasury in the past to entirely ignore business lobbies and businesses. They thought they could do it all with that sort of theory and, um, and graphs and so forth. So... It's a listening government, and the government has been listening. I mean, I think the best example of this is on the capital expensing thing, which for a long while, Treasury ideology would have been this doesn't work. And even the OBR analysis is saying, look, this might not work. But they've been listening to business and saying, if you've got any chance of getting out of this hole in business investment, do something on the allowances, because it's been bad for decades, and so is business investment. You've got to throw everything at it. Another great example of the government listening is the whole Windsor Framework Agreement, I think. You know, they realise that business isn't just, they don't get into Brexit wars for the fun of it. They do it because they need to tell the government what really works and what doesn't. And having something like the Windsor Framework Agreement enables business to start being able to plan with a little certainty. Um, and I would say, you know, it's not just the Conservative Party. Both sides, the Labour Party and the Tory Party, are interested now in what works, not just gestures. They realise that if we don't get growth going decently, we're going to be in a terrible hole. Everyone agrees, even Liz Truss agrees with that side. So there's also lots of details to follow spaces where they actually need some engagement. I mean, the example I would give right now is investment zones. We've had lots of different attempts at zone policy in the last 15 years. They're not particularly intellectually respectable, if I can say it quite politely. And um, and they need to know what's going to make it work. Why I, why would you go to this place? What you know? What sort of engagement do you need? Do you need more local leadership down there? What what sort of combination of government levers will make these things work? Everyone wants to know what will boost investment. That, for me, is the really key variable. We kind of understand labour supply, and we've got a lot of levers. Business investment relies on the businesses. So I know you're expecting me to say this, but you need to engage with the government. You need to talk to them. They ought to be um, open door to you right now because they really need the plans they've set out, the plan that Jeremy Hunt says is already working. They need to make it work. So engage. Back to you. Thanks very much, Giles. And uh, thank you as well to Tim uh, and to everyone that's joined the call today. Um, We hope that you have found this useful and interesting. Um, As ever, if you do have any questions or or points that you want to follow up on, please do get in touch. Um, Otherwise, have a good day and goodbye.